Welcome back to another episode of Back and Forth with Blue Ridge Wealth Planners. My name is John Vandergriff. I'm one of the owners and wealth planners here at Blue Ridge Wealth Planners. I'm joined, uh, as I am every time, by the world-famous uh, ski man himself, uh, Zach Hill, uh, who is the operations lead at our company. He's also portfolio, portfolio management lead, if I can spit that out. Um, and so what we're going to do today is continue a little bit of our discussion that we started on behavioral finance. Uh, and, and just as a refresher, you know, this kind of combines both Zach and I's background with my degree in psychology, with Zach's degrees in finance, you know, talking about uh, this as a very uh, kind of relevant and growing area of the financial world, uh, but something that we do on a kind of one-on-one -on -one basis, I guess, you know, every day sitting down with clients, helping them understand the decisions that they need to make. And today we're going to focus in on one of those, which is very prevalent or prevalent for retirees. And that is the topic of loss aversion. And so, you know, we'll introduce what it is, um, talk a little bit about some of the issues with it, um, but also how it can be used appropriately. Because I think it is one of those where, um, you know, it's a topic that people need to understand losses and not be naive to them, but also be able to view them in the right perspective. And so, uh, but when we talk about loss aversion, I brought up this quote because, you know, I think it's a very relevant quote for sports people. Um, but again, it goes into this same topic. And this is a quote by a guy named Jimmy Connors who says, I hate to lose more than I love to win. And so, again, that, that kind of in a nutshell frames this discussion where, you know, people don't want to see a loss so much so that they would rather not gain anything just so that they can keep the value. And that's been an explanation for a lot of people that are just strictly bank people today because they aren't getting any value in right. there, you know, definitely not in, re in relation to inflation. Um, but also, you know, it, it does start to become something that is very easy to do when you feel like you have an appropriate amount of money. You know, so right. where do you want to kind of take that, Zach? Yeah, and I think uh, it's an interesting conundrum to think about because most of the time we think about trying to take too much risk. We're like, well, we don't want to take too much risk. We want to be conservative as you get into retirement. But this is the exact opposite of that, and that is, and this happens all the time as well, where you're just not taking enough risk. So that yeah. opportunity for gains is, is not really there. Um, it is an interesting psychological experiment because – I think that as I as I was try, I try to wrap my head around this all the time as we talk about these biases and see where does this impact and where does this fall into my life and I think where I see this happen is just we we have seen clients time and time again who have been in cash like you said for 20 years and there's always an event that we say we're going to wait until after this we're going to wait until after this because this is what's going to cause the markets to crash and you just keep waiting and waiting and waiting well the reality is is most years markets are up. The, you know, the average long-term stock market return is, depending on what years you use, 6, 8, 10 percent. And yeah. so if you're looking at that and you say, well, you know, I'm just waiting for this X, Y, Z thing to happen just because you're afraid of losing money, then you're going to miss out on potentially years and years and years of gains because of that. And your portfolio is going to lose. I mean, it's going to be an opportunity cost. It's not, you know, it's not a paper loss, but you're going to have that huge opportunity cost just because you are waiting for the market to fall. Well, and I think, too, the damaging part of this, and it goes back into what you're talking about, where you look at those studies where you miss the 10 best days, the 20 best days over a 20-year yeah. period of time, and it drastically reduces your 
uh, ability to make anything and and you normally follow up or most people don't do this in that illustration but most of your best days are after your worst days. Right. And so whenever somebody drops so much where they just can't stand it anymore and they cash out, that's when, you know, the market can have the ability to greatly, imp- you know, increase. You know, one example of that just from recent past is Brexit. You know, when Britain just announced that they were leaving the European Union, you know, you had an 8% drop in the market in one day, you know, and some people probably got out and then missed that resurgent back up two days yeah. later, you know, where it was back to where it was just because they realized, oh, this isn't them actually leaving. It's just them announcing that they were going to leave sometime later, you know. Right. And so uh, I think, though, that, that that is something where most of the time when you see this start to become a problem, it's not because people are selling at the top of a market. Mm-hmm. It's because they're selling when they get scared and they just can't stand to lose or they just you know, for whatever reason, and largely emotional, you know, it's just a response where they say, well, gosh, I just can't stand to do this anymore. And so I don't really care about throwing away any potential of upside as long as I make sure that that downside number doesn't bite me. But really, there's more to weigh in that discussion. And again, we'll, we'll talk very practically about some kind of financial planning aspects of this. But I think that's one of the things that it is important to recognize that it is a, a, thing, you know, right. and, and there's a defined name for a very good reason, but also different periods in your life, you you can be more um, susceptible to loss aversion than others. Right. You know. Yeah. And I think that what's interesting about it is, like you said, you, there's Brexit, there's all kinds of real world examples. I mean, we saw this in 20, in 2020 with COVID mm-hmm. is I, I, I mean, there were so many people that were worried about the markets in the February to March time period. And by the time you get worried and you take an action on it, I mean, it's kind of too late. Like you're, like you said, you're selling to avoid further losses and then you miss out on the gains because the reality is, is most of the time the stock market's pretty boring. Yeah. (laughs) Is the majority of days the stock market is, it is very risky, but it's also, you know, like you said, a, you'll have a large down day and a large up day, but most days are pretty average. They're within that zero to 1%. Yeah. Uh, 1% return. So missing out on those big up and down days just because you're trying to trade the market rather than just being invested is something that I think that this really speaks to is not trying to trade the market, but actually being a long-term investor. Yeah. And, and I think too, you know, you brought up a good example there because we, you know, with, with people that work with us in planning toward retirement, I would say largely the job we have is making them more conservative you know, uh, than they were when they came to us. But there are some people that, you know, want to stay that way, but then want to stay that way because it makes logical sense at an all-time high in the market. But even those people, whenever February, March of 2020 was happening, and we were actively reaching out to them saying, hey, I think we're closer to the bottom than we are to the top, that loss aversion really kicked in to where they said, like, I'm out. And I kind of like the way this water feels. I don't want to just put an influx of cash somewhere right. and watch it lose when I don't know where that bottom piece mm-hmm. is. Because, I mean, you know, we can look at it now and and say, yeah, we felt like things, but we weren't really sure where it was going to yeah. stop. You know, oh, it depended yeah. on how long the downturn was. But I think fundamentally it made a lot of sense that the market did go down right. and that it would recover. I don't think either of us probably thought it would be that fast. Um, to have like a 50% return in, you know, a four-month period of time. Yeah, but but it's one of those where 
um, you know, the, even those people, that loss aversion pulled stronger than the opportunity to have a, a pretty significant run up on right. cash. And we're talking about people that were in cash January of 20, not, yeah. you know, March of 20. Like they just entered cash. They they had been in cash. We're looking for an opportunity, but still that pull of losing was something right. where I think the longer you stay in that conservative position, it's very easy to sit there, you know, because it's, uh, it's comfortable. You, know, you don't want to rock that You know what you're going to get. You know, when you check your account statement, you know exactly what you're going to see. And so that both you know, up and down, right? Because it's going to say and and this, <laughs> it, yeah, and it's and it's not to say that everybody needs to be invested in the stock market, but what we see is, you know, every now and then you get, you know, you see someone who is just so conservative that it makes your retirement goals hard to achieve. Yeah, you can't, you know, it's hard to achieve and plan for retirement when you've had a zero percent return for ten years, and you're just going to expect a zero percent return because, like you said, the reality is, is just. Cash and CDs are not paying what they did 40 years ago. This is this is a zero interest rate world. So yeah. cash is cash is returning zero. So we do have to start to take, you know, some risk in some portfolios. So just also want to say this doesn't mean everybody needs to go and jump in the stock market, but it does mean that we do see it uh, quite often is that people are so scared to lose money that we just they just miss out on a lot of a lot of different things. Well, and I think too, you know, where where this hits most individual investors and and you can apply this to both brokerage accounts, but also your 401k, is where this becomes so much more damaging is when you choose to move toward a loss aversion portfolio, you don't have any upside potential. You know, like yeah. our job, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, you know, as we progress through this episode, but our job is to find conservative pieces that actually make something. Right. You know, not conservative with no upside potential. Uh, but again, when you're in primarily stocks, bonds, and cash, you know, you, you are presented with the question of, do I want fluctuation or not? You know, if I, yep. if I do and I can, I'm willing to accept it, then I will have a mix of stocks and bonds. If I'm not willing to accept it, either a cash or stable value position is what I have to use to balance whatever risk I'm willing right. to take. You know, and that's where, you know, from a brokerage world mindset, it becomes so illogical to leave the stocks or even bonds because, you know, as bad as interest rates are in bonds are still better than cash today (laughs) uh, if you hold a bond to its maturity date. So, but, but our job is to try to find other solutions that still keep some conservative aspects of the money, but at the same time, you can keep up with inflation, which is the challenge today that unfortunately a lot of safe investments broadly speaking, can't do and right. can't even get anywhere close to. Yeah. And also, I wanted—I meant to say this earlier and forgot to touch on it, is you mentioned that one of the biggest things that we hear when we think about that and think about, here are my investable options. Well, I don't like stocks. They're at an all-time high. And then you said, like, there's a lot of psychology around that. But the reality is, is that stocks are at an all-time high almost all the time. Yeah. I mean, we hit all-time highs. Sometimes we hit them 50, 60, 70 times in a year. And mm-hmm. so, like, it, it's nice to say, yes, the stock market is more expensive than it's ever been. And that is true a lot of the time. But that was true in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and this year. Yeah. It's true in every decade at some point or another. And so using that uh, and knowing that and having that knowledge base allows you to say, okay, well, just because it's at an all-time high is not a reason to avoid, is not a reason to not invest. Yeah. Just in the same way, just because, you know, just because markets have fallen 30% is not a reason to get in. You need to understand that, you know, you need to understand what's going on. So just having that full picture and understanding 
all of the sides of the equation, I think, help make a better decision. Yeah, because, you know, you, we'll talk more about this, but fundamentally what you need from this money should determine how you invest it. You know, right. like if you if you want long-term gains, then the stock market, it's hard to argue of, against yep. being there. You just have to be willing to stick to that, you know, and, and but it's one of those where I think loss aversion comes sometimes from a lack of information. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't know how much they need. They don't know whether the, you know, like you said, the market is at all-time highs now and it won't be again for five years yeah. or it will be next week. You right. know, and, and the, the uncertainty around all of that where, you know, as you move forward in the market, you are taking a risk. You don't know what the future will hold immediately. You do know that over a long enough period of time, you'll make money. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a question of can you do without this money until that time frame? Right. You know, and, and if not, then where do you park it to achieve whatever your goals are? Right. And I and this is purely anecdotal, but <clears> I also wonder because I haven't seen a study that references if loss of is more common in people who are about to retire or retired, yeah. because I was talking to my dad after the in the end of 2018, markets lost almost 20 percent. It was like 19.7 percent through the fourth quarter of 2018. And my dad called me and was talking to me, and he said, "I just he goes, I've had my risk. I've taken my risk. I just cannot stand to lose anything now." He's like, I've had, you know, 30 years where I was invested in the market. I don't want anything. So he sold, I mean, I think he sold all of his stocks at that point. That's what he he called and he was like, I'm going to sell all my stocks. I'm out. Well, you know, that's good for his psychology. He probably felt a lot more comfortable. But the reality was 2019 and 2020 were incredible years for the market. Yeah. So it's that it's that dichotomy of I've made all I can. I don't want to take any risks. So then you get zero return because you're just not taking any risk. Yeah. But I, I wonder sometimes if it is more common to see once you have taken risk for 20 years and you just are done and then you're out. And then but, but you still as you know, we're going to talk about, there's, you still need to make, have the ability to make some return in retirement. It's not just a stop. Don't want to make anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And we, we've got to make sure that we are in a position to fairly present both sides of that argument. Yeah. Cause I think it, it, when we sit down with someone, we don't want to see them take all their money at risk, but at the same time, we don't want all their money at cash either. Right. You know, so it's about having that balanced approach of, okay, this is a risk that we are fundamentally willing to take. And then for this money that we're not, how do we balance that? Right. You know, so, yeah. So there's a, two more stats that I want to talk about with loss version. And I think the they're both interesting stories and we talk about statistics all the time and I know that that you can sometimes be disconnected from them but these were real life studies that we saw play out Uh, and so one of them is from a company called Dalbar they do studies on the SP 500 and how how individuals have traded yep and so in 2018 um, they did they published their they did this study that they do every year and they said that the average investor actually lost twice as much as as the S&P 500 and the majority of that loss is attributed to investors selling stock out of fear of further losses. Yep. And so that's exactly what we're talking about here is as soon as you start to see markets losing, you sell your stocks and you, and you get out. And like we said, 2019 and 2020 were incredible years for the stock market. So if you were one of those individuals who you lost twice as much as, much as the S&P 500, you're missing out on all kinds of stuff, not even to mention some of the stuff that happened in 2018. Yeah. So I think that that you see that and you're like, well, that would never be me. Well, we have, you know, we have actual statistical evidence that this happens every single year. Uh, and well, so and it's, as you talk about that, 
<clears throat> it's kind of like if you had a room full of people and you asked all of them, who in here considers themselves to be a better than average driver? You know, like everybody in the room, yeah. with the exception of a few humble people, are probably going to raise their hand. But the reality is half the room's right, half of them's wrong. You know, exactly. and it's, so it's like if you don't consider yourself the average investor, you're either lying to yourself or you're right. Yeah. You know, but it's it's one of the two. So. Yeah. And it, the, I, that is always so funny because that's exactly this type of study that Daniel Kahneman did when he was when he was researching these behavioral biases. He's one of the Nobel Prize winning uh, economists that developed all of these biases. He developed loss aversion and kind of named it and studied it. Yeah. And so he did a study that was really similar to that that I just wanted to call out here. And this is, he did a study with a lot of students and he's, and it was just about a coin flip. It's pretty simple. And he said, if the coin, if the coin lands on tails, you lose $10. How much do you need to make to, to uh, on, if it lands on heads to make this gamble worth it. Mm -hmm. So I give you a 50-50 shot. 50% chance it lands on tails. You lose $10. 50% chance it lands on heads. How much do you need to make? Yeah. Well, the actual economics answer and the rational human answer, according to economists, would be $20. Yeah. That way, 50-50 shot, you come out, it's completely, it's zero over the long term. Yeah. We said that the majority of students actually said some number that was above 20. Mm -hmm. And what he found out was that most when you start to ask questions like that where you're not thinking about stocks and you're not thinking about bonds you're just thinking about coin flip and probabilities everybody said above twenty dollars right. and it doesn't make any sense to economists and that's why you start to de start to see these biases develop as you're like well i don't want to lose the ten dollars and it's like well you make 20. You, you know you make twice as much as you potentially lose but it was that fear of losing ten dollars when you're starting you know i'm starting at zero and maybe i lose ten dollars but then maybe i make twenty dollars on the next yeah. coin toss and so those things, I think, when you start to look at this and say, like, okay, loss aversion makes sense in stocks, but you can see it in all other areas of your of your life, is you're just afraid to lose whatever you have. That's, you know, a small portion of that that we talk about sometimes is the endowment effect, is everything that mm -hmm. you already own, you value more than what you might than what you might gain. And well, and even, you know, if we take it, because we'll talk about endowments and spread of risk, but even if you take that from just a purely focusing on the stock silo perspective like that's the difference in a individual stock portfolio versus using index positions like etfs where mm -hmm. that loss aversion risk starts to dissipate quite a bit when you spread the just singular risk of hey i'm investing in this company and they could legitimately go to zero right. you know like most stock indexes can have a really bad time but won't completely devalue, you know? So it's one of those where if people truly understand some of the diversification. Now, if you don't want to lose 30%, don't go in the stock market. Right. You know, I mean, that, that's a, a pretty fundamental question, but it's one of those where it's like, if you want, if you're okay losing 30, you just don't want to lose 100%. There's a way you can do this risk conversation where uh, that diversification piece as a part, and again, just looking at the stock market sample, um, is something that helps reduce that of loss right. aversion appetite, I guess, if you want to put it that way, uh, just so that you're in a position to have a realistic expectation. And I think that, from my experience on having this conversation with people, is trying to create realistic expectations of what's going to happen is so important in fighting against loss aversion from a widespread standpoint, you know, because... It, I think too many times financial advisors 
may or may not mean well. It just it varies. But, you know, thinking and promising returns that they don't know can happen, you know, is a very damaging thing to the psyche of a lot of investors where, you know, as we look at the three main planning areas that we try to get numbers on, growth potential, safety versus risk, and income, the only two of those that we can conceivably control is how much we take out and then how much we expose to risk. You know, we can't control the growth number. And so too many times I think the loss aversion may be just a really strong reaction to uh, a marketplace that just crams risk down somebody's throat so much to where they don't know it and they have one bad experience and then they never want to take a risk again. You know, and it's just like a a way further back in the wrong direction swing to a very avoidable problem, you know, and – and it comes down to, I mean, we talk about this all the time, and I don't think you can really talk about it enough, is knowing what your real risk tolerance is. Yeah. Is because that is, like you said, is so many people are especially getting close to retirement in some of the most risky portfolios you could ever conceive, and then you get burned once, and you're like, well, I'm never taking risk again. It's, the, you know, I yeah. didn't, I hated that. That was horrible. And it's like, well, the reality is, is we just weren't taking either, you know, calculated risk, you weren't in a diversified portfolio, so you were way too risky. And this specific type of risk, it's, it's risk is such a broad term that yeah. we really have to drill down into it and say, what, what exactly are we talking about here? Well, and it's, it's interesting because I think when you have such broad defining categories, like most people call risk categories, conservative, moderate, aggressive. And you may have like, Aggressive, moderately aggressive, moderate, moderately yeah. conservative, conservative, but still five categories. It's like who the crap knows where they are, you know? <laughs> and they're all relative. So and aggressive it, may be conservative relative to somebody else's aggressive. Right. It's, and so it's interesting because that kind of parallels uh, whenever we would meet with people. Uh, there was a period of time there where we started asking them about their history and like what they grew up with money. Like 97% of the time, people said they grew up in a middle class family. And it's just because psychologically, I think we had been trained by, I don't know, media, government, whoever, <laughs> to think we were all middle class. Yeah. Well, again, going back to the averages, it's like, no, some people are middle class, <laughs> some people are upper class, some people are lower class. The way we define it is different than reality. Right. And so we try to, when we have a conversation about risk, we try to define it either by percentage of loss that you're comfortable with or actual dollars. That way you're having a conversation and, you know, experiencing a little bit of what that would be like, even if you're not, mm-hmm. you know, but like if you got a million dollar portfolio and you lose a hundred thousand dollars of it, how you feeling? You know, right. not, are you a one through five on a risk scale? You know, because what's a three? Well, it's yeah. not 50%, <laughs> you know, but some people may think it is, you know, it's just, exactly. it, it's such a, a weird conversation that has developed. And I don't know if it was because people, just didn't want to have an honest conversation about risk uh, because they didn't want clients to know how much risk they were taking, or maybe they weren't able to kind of connect the dots between what an investor was thinking and the reality of it. Because it is like this loss aversion becomes so strong that sometimes if you're forced to tell somebody worst case answers, you know, like I had a conversation with a client the other day where we're talking about an investment portfolio and we're saying, okay, historical average is somewhere around 4%. Its maximum loss potential is 10. It can make in the 10s. You know what the investor focused on? I'm going to be able to make 4% only, and I'm going to have the chance to lose 10% at any time. 
Yeah. You know, again, and again, it's just from the framing that they, and I try to present all sides of the scenario where realistically you're looking at a, maybe a positive 10, negative 10, average of four over time. Right. They frame the discussion of best case four, worst case 10, why am I going to consider doing this? Well, if that's all you have to work with, then yeah, that's, yeah, that's not a very good investment because uh, your real average is probably going to be negative, you know, but, um, but it's just interesting the way that some people will digest that information. You know? Yeah, and we're and we're kind of seeing some of that play out right now. We were talking about this before we started recording. Is just the bond market with interest rates going up. As people have historically thought, well, bonds are safe. I don't have to worry about it. Let's you know, bond. I'm not going to lose money in bonds. Well, the, that's not really reality because while bonds are less risky than stocks, they still have interest rate risk, and so. Yeah. It's we I think that comes down to just all of the different complexities of that and having that conversation where we've said, well, bonds are paying, you know, one percent and I'm going to get one percent for 10 years because that's how this works. Well, if you hold the bond to maturity, that's exactly how it works. But the reality is, is most people don't do that. No. So it's understanding. Well, if that's if. I'm not going to hold the bond for 10 years, then I need to understand what is interest rate risk? What is this other type of risk? So as you dive into it, it, it becomes almost daunting where I start to see why people are just like, you know what? Forget it. I don't, I don't want to lose anything. I'm okay with where I am. I don't want to, I don't want to do, do with it. Well, and the interesting part when you use that example of bond funds is it would be different if the attitude of the manager was, let's do everything that we can to preserve value of client accounts. But the lack of responsibility, maybe is the best way to say that, of the mutual fund manager where they don't necessarily care about what the value of the accounts are. They're chasing yield, you know, for the bond fund. And it's like whoever's been in this is going to be sacrificed on the altar of the next one, you know. And that's so much the, the mindset of the brokerage industry where you can build a laddered bond portfolio that cannot lose money. Now, it's going to lose money buying power-wise because it's just not able to keep up with inflation with new dollars today. But you could build it where principal risk is zero. You just have a lot of illiquidity and, you know, whatever percentage of the bonds that come due each year is what your access points are. Um, But the other problem is it's just there, there aren't the investors, going back to that psychological aspect of it, have been told bonds equal safety. Right. And whenever that turns out not to be true, that's exactly what's going to happen with people who are going to say, I don't know who to trust anymore. I've I've seen and testified to the fact that stocks are risky, (laughs) but should make money over time. Because again, the longer you stay in it, that is a, you know, again, self-confirming diagnosis there. Uh, But bonds have not had that reckoning yet. You know, people have seen interest rates fall since the early 80s. And so they largely view bonds as that yin to the yang of the stock market. And it may not be that. So, so again, from a planning standpoint, if you have somebody who has a true zero risk tolerance for a portion of money, you've got to be able to find things that are a true zero risk tolerance piece, and and otherwise you don't position it that right. way, you know, because you're setting somebody up for a fail at some time. Exactly, and and I I've used this example a lot, but during the middle of uh, the February March drop bear market in stocks, there was a about a week and a half period where interest rates rose. So bonds were falling, so yeah. bond prices were falling, stocks were falling. And those correlations that historically over long periods of time hold true did not. And so that's where you, you get, like you said, you get that event where it's just like, I don't know what to do anymore because this isn't exactly true. So it's really just about 
communicating that risk. And yeah. that's really our job is to communicate and say there is a risk here, but we, you know, this is a risk that we're willing to take. But there's also other solutions, yeah. you know. Right. So, yeah. I mean, you know, we'll probably, I don't know if we'll have enough time to unpack the full endowment model here, mm-hmm. but it'd be good to maybe do a podcast on that. But there are other areas that present different risk opportunities, different frameworks, different exposures uh, that, again, you know, we can have things that have zero market risk, but then every investment out there has some type of opportunity risk. You know, Mm -hmm. like if you position something in a CD, you're not risking your money, but at the same time you're losing buying power, you know, so that's an opportunity risk that you face. Um, So, again, there, there is no zero risk investments. From a 100% perspective. Exactly, because then even if you're in cash, inflation. Yeah, you just got to decide what risks you're ultimately willing to take and which ones you are most averse to, (laughs) you know. So uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this discussion. If you do have questions, email us, info at blueridgewealth.com. We'll probably continue more behavioral finance conversations, but until then, hopefully you enjoyed our conversation on loss aversion today, uh, and we'll kind of unpack endowments and things as we continue to go back and forth, um, either on camera or off camera. Um, (laughs) That's just kind of Zach and I's conversation a lot of times, but... But thank you guys for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time. Investment advisory services offered through Blue Ridge Wealth Planners, a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Madison Avenue Securities, LLC. Member FINRA, SIPC, MAS, and Blue Ridge Wealth Planners are not affiliated companies.